Speaking of a spiritual experience that his disciples could enjoy. 
But you can see now, from what he stated there, that historians, and like he quotes the professor, the professor he quotes is regarded as an outstanding historian uh, on the early centuries of Christianity. And historians universally recognize, in other words, when they read the New Testament, uh, without the bias of any denomination or anything, they have no problem whatsoever seeing that Jesus promised to come back in glory, in judgment, in his generation, and that in the early church, they lived, in his words, with vivid expectation of the coming of the Lord. But then he makes a statement, of course, nothing happened. Well, what helps him come to that conclusion? In fact, all of the scholars out there now that uh, study and they read the New Testament and they see that vivid expectation uh, of the, the Christians have the second coming of the Lord, of the Lord, and then they hear all through the centuries the church preaching this message that the Lord is going to come back any day now and trying to instill that same vivid expectation. What is it? that causes them to come to the conclusion that what Jesus said just did not happen. And what the apostles believed just didn't happen. What the early church believed just did not happen. And they take that as one of the evidences of their not being fully inspired. And by the way, the liberals, the people that we call liberals, they do believe. Many of these people that we call way out liberals uh, within some of the various groups, they do believe in God. They do believe in the deity of Jesus. They do believe in his resurrection. What they don't believe is the verbal inspiration of the Bible. Okay, that's why that, that you, you might say, well, why do we gather to worship God and don't seem to have the same kind of respect that we think they should have for the Bible as a source of authority? It's because they don't believe it's verbally inspired. They believe that those people were guided in some sense by the Holy Spirit in the same way we are now. But sometimes they misinterpreted the Spirit, and sometimes they were wrong, and they went through the same process that we do now. All right? One of their evidences for this is this very thing here. It is the fact that, that the church vividly believed that the Lord was coming back, and they can see that. And they have to, they don't just glance over those scriptures. Uh, he's coming soon. It's near at hand. Uh, it's going to speedily come to pass. It's going to happen in this generation. They know they're there. And so they just come along. Now what fundamentalist Christians have done, they just ignore those passages. In order to have the Bible true to its word and Jesus still coming in the future, they just ignore those passages and say, well, one day is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. And so although he said speedily, although he said near at hand, although he said it's coming in that generation, it don't necessarily have to mean that. Well, you can see how that comes across as a real cop-out on their point. But what's the real problem? The real problem is a misinterpretation of the text itself. Jesus was true to his word. And if he did not come in the first century, then the liberal is exactly right. You have Jesus saying something that he didn't do. Because he didn't say he was going to come 2,000 years down the pike or way out in the future. He said he was going to come back in that generation. He said he was going to come back in glory. He said he was going to come back speedily. And all of this was near at hand and something that was imminent. And definitely, if the apostles were preaching something else, they sure confused everybody in the early church. Because everybody in the early church was imminently. In fact, remember in Thessalonica, they got so excited that he points out here. The people at Thessalonica got so excited about the whole issue, a lot of them just quit work and were waiting for him to come. They thought it was just that soon and that quick. But I think you can see from that the importance that although this thing that we're talking about, of looking at these passages in their context and using them in the right way and noting that these passages that we have applied to the end of the world and everything, that in context, invariably, when we look at them, that Jesus is talking about coming in judgment on the Jewish nation, the downfall of Jerusalem, and the downfall of the temple, and it did indeed happen in exactly that way. And I think we can see that this becomes very important when you're going to deal with individuals who do study history and who have read the New Testament. And keep in mind, when you look at it from this guy's perspective now, he studied it, 
and he has seen what, what has been said there, that he knows what Christians teach, and he just thinks they ought to go ahead and admit that there was a mistake that was admitted, that was made there. And so teaching one thing about the end of the world, what it should be, the destruction of Jerusalem, although this fellow is a believer in Jesus, it is one of the things that has kept him from believing the verbal inspiration of the New Testament. And so it is important that. Now, again, leave this and the way this fellow and the professors and, and all the historians and people like that study that. And then come up to the all through the centuries of the present time to the individuals who have taught and who believe uh, that these passages apply to the end of the world and the second coming of Christ. How many of them, of all that you've heard and preached and believe it, how many of them honestly are dedicated students of the history of those first few centuries and of the language and of the New Testament itself? Well, you know as well as I do that right out here in all of these groups that is uh, proclaiming this message right now, that there is more emotion taking place than there is anything concrete that has to do with information. And that there is more reading the Bible from the standpoint of this is what God has to say to me than there is going back and literally studying, hey, when was this book written? Who was it written to? What is the total context? What is the history? What are the customs? What is the language? And then looking and saying there's very little of it done. And so again, I just wanted to read that because I've uh, given that as an example before. I first came in contact with it years back uh, when I was in the Marine Corps taking courses in philosophy at the University, University of Maryland. I used to offer courses on military bases. And I took a course in religious philosophy when I was in Okinawa. And that's the first place that I came in contact with the arguments against the inspiration of the Bible. And that was the, one of the number one things that was presented. The fact that all the apostles and Jesus taught something, the early church believed it. It hasn't come about, and Christians all through the centuries are still using those same passages to teach, to get people stirred up and emotionally think that he's going to come instead of just admitting that he did not come. Okay, now, let me flip over here to... Uh, Something else, if I can get it real quick. That'd be the reason why they, that they would accept other books on the fire with the Bible. Sure. That's exactly right, Jack. The, uh, like, for example, the Catholic Church accepts the New Testament, uh, this, the Old Testament, and then the 12 books. Then they accept tradition and history on par with it. And, and then they would accept, like, what's going on in the church today. In other words, they believe those other works are not perfect. They recognize the imperfections that we point out. But they say, this is not either. And, and that is one of the evidences that they would give. And they believe just in, in the same way that the Holy Spirit is leading them today. And they're like the Pope specifically would be led by the Holy Spirit. And all through the years, people would believe that. And they believe that although they're led, that you don't have to always give in to the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you can misinterpret what the Holy Spirit wants. And so that uh, before we get the true message out, we've just got to be totally and absolutely submissive to the Holy Spirit. Sometimes that we miss it a little bit. And so you can see how that they do believe the things. They're not just a bunch of bad guys who have chosen to believe some things that they ought not to believe. Their understanding of that and some other doctrines promotes that. It really does. In fact, one of the things that over the years have helped me more and more as I read from the writings of other groups and uh, their leaders and all, that to, to just simply represent them as bad guys or people who don't love God or love what is right because, you know, you have a different with them on point, it's just wrong. Uh, they uh, look at their lives many times will reveal very sincere, dedicated individuals uh, who have spent their in fact, one man I'm reading from now, uh, he's literally has spent his entire life in studying the Bible. He's fluent in the biblical languages, also fluent in English, all studied in the customs, the history, and everything. There's, uh, he's written a number of books. There's no way that he could know that much without having spent his entire life. Uh, well, there again, he has to be sincere to, to do that kind of study that's involved in that. 
But again, it helps, it helps us to see that there's some things that we just think, well, big deal, you know, or, you know, it's, you know it really doesn't matter or anything like that. It does matter uh, that we ought to all try to study and be as accurate as we know how. And if we learn something and, and find out it's right, stick with it, no matter what anybody says. Let's have the attitude of Paul and everything. Let God be true and every man a if, if it comes to that. Okay, now, let's see. Uh, I wanted to over here. Revelation, okay. Now, remember we pointed out in Revelation that there's a lot of symbolic language in it. And we come to that today, and, and we, man, we just don't, I know I, for years, I just got to read it for a long period of time. I read through it because it was there. But I had a period of time in my life where I just got in blues and I couldn't understand that book. You know, and then I read various commentaries and everything like that. And remember we said at the very outset of our study that one of the things that we need to recognize is that, that those people, found some things easier to understand than us because of their background and all, and that to put ourselves in their position when they receive the book, we need to go and get the same background they've got. Well, now here is, uh, here's, here's some comments that he makes now about uh, this type of writing that we have in the book of Revelation. He said, in the period from about 100 B.C. to A.D. 100, Many Jewish writers, notice many, put forward their own solution to the problem, to problems. Their books are similar to one another in that many modern scholars think of them as a distinct movement in Palestinian society. They have become to be known as apocalypse, people who reveal secret things. All right, revelation, that's why we refer to it as the apocalypse, written in symbolic language to reveal information that you specifically do not want to put in plain language. features. Okay, notice now the point I want to make is that although you and I are getting our, a dose of this as we read Revelation, notice what he's saying that for a hundred years prior to Revelation the Jews had been writing in this kind of terminology and for a hundred years afterwards. And so this kind of pictorial language figurative language, poetic metaphors that we have in Revelation is a type of language that to the Jew of John's day, he was very familiar with and had been engaging in it for about a hundred years. And he goes back and points out the reasons for this. The Jews were under tremendous persecution and there were a lot of things that they believed and wrote that they didn't necessarily want uh, everybody else to plainly know exactly what was being said. And for example, here you are in a country that is totally controlled by who? Rome. Strongest country in the face of the earth. Totally in control of Rome. But you believe the emperor of Rome is a beast. You believe he represents the throne of Satan. You believe that although he's on top right now, God is going to deal with him. And God is going to work the overthrow of this power, whatever, whatever the power might be. Now what do you think is going to happen in Russia today when somebody from the KGB picks up a letter that this fellow has written to Ivan here and he's talking about the overthrow of the Russian government and what a slouch that Gorbachev is. Two years of age. Uh, look how the 
with Jesus and said, I can do with you what I want. I can turn you loose or I can kill you. Just on his word. Well, when you're in a country like that, you're pretty concerned. And so what happened is these apocalypse developed a form of writing where they developed symbols to mean certain things. And of course, these people that started this apocalyptic writing had a good background. Remember Daniel over the Old Testament? Daniel referred to beasts. And remember how leopards and bears and, and he goats and rams all symbolized various things? I wonder in Daniel's day, you know, to, to come out and, uh, you know, tell some of those people every single solitary thing, how that would have went on. And so he got it in a term. And so these people developed a various type of symbolic language of dealing, and they actually developed a seal to interpret and deal with these things. Now, something we'll get to tonight, and I'll flash this one up, what's going to tonight, but I'll flash it up for you uh, next, next week on the screen. There was an art developed called cryptography, okay?
Tuesday night, and they communicate. Do they just communicate in Plato English to people in the Russian embassy? Or do they work out codes for everything they want to say, and they have people over there that are trained to break those codes down? Isn't that the way they do it? And the Russians do it the same way? And in fact, uh, remember one of the big things that happened not too long back, if you're familiar with the Walker who was indicted, and in fact I believe he's been convicted now as a spy that had sold secrets to Russia. One of the things he did is, is he gave a breakdown of the code that we was using to the Russians. And so that meant for a number of years they had been able to decode information that we'd sent. And they said it was something that was going to cause this country billions and billions of dollars to change. But the point is, countries, when you want to keep secrets, have always worked out codes. And in the same way, Revelation now. Revelation, remember, starts off as an author. Then what has happened to it? Been banished to the Isle of Patmos. Was it popular to preach Jesus? It wasn't. They had already killed most of the apostles, maybe all of them at this point. You know, we can only speculate on that, but we know that, that the apostles were going to their death. We've already read about the execution of James. We know what Jesus told Peter. And John has been banished to the Isle of Patmos. It's not popular. You've got the Jews trying to step out of Christianity. And you've got Nero, who's a maniac on the throne. Now, when John writes, we're right at the verge, right at the verge, of the Christians going to undergo tremendous suffering. But John wants to hang in there. John doesn't have any kind words for the guy that's going to be causing the suffering. The Christians are going to undergo this suffering with a lot of persecution. But he wants the Christians to know what is the best way to make somebody hang in there through suffering. If you're in the hospital suffering and they're giving you some medicine, what is one of the best ways, let's just speak in a material way, of giving you hope and causing you to hang in there? Be over a little bit. Be over a little bit, right. Be over. In other words, just like Brad when he took chemotherapy. What happens when you take chemotherapy? Hair falls out. Do you know what they told Brad? It'll grow back. It'll grow back. And so although it fell out, he had hope it's going to come back. And then they told him that when they put the chemical in his body, it's terrible now. It's so bad that you're going to want to die. In fact, I've talked to people that have gone through that, and they said that they actually, it's so bad that they want to die sometimes. But then the hope, if you'll tough it out, if you'll hang in there, you're going to, and of course we can only post probability. There's a good chance you're going to conquer. Alright, if I'm in a hospital, if you're in a hospital, and nobody can offer any hope to you, you just give up the ghost and die. It, it's that hope that causes you to fight and to hang in there and, and try to win that disease. But if you don't, once you reach the point you have no hope, then they may as well just go get the casket ready for you. So, these people now are being severely persecuted. It is the worst in the history of the church. Because not only are they getting it from the Jews, now Rome has turned all its fury on the church. And so the church has become the bad guy. And they've got the truth. And John's been bashed out of Patmos. Here you are, and your leaders, one by one, have been killed, the apostles. Paul, executed by Nero. Peter, executed under Nero. And so you know that when John's writing this. Peter and Paul are both dead. James is dead. The only apostle I can know anything about that's alive is John, and he's on the Isle of Patmos. And so John, what does John want then? John wants to give you hope. And he wants to let you know that that old buzzer in Rome, see there we went, a little bit of figure to go hammers, right? He wants to, only he doesn't say no buzzer. He's got a few other names for it. We might say that, right? Jesus one time called Herod an old fox. So John wants to let you know that that beast that's going to persecute you, that ungodly reprobate that opposes God, and as we're going to see in the 13th chapter, that ungodly reprobate that not only will oppose God, 
it's going to be in for time, times, and half a time. It's going to be for 1260 days. It's going to be for 42 months. Hang in there. Hang in there. Be thou faithful unto death. Son, you're going to go to your death. But you hang in there because God is going to deal, He's going to take that beast and deal with the biggest problem in the Jews. When he gets through with the Jews, he'll deal with the beast. And when God is through dealing, Christianity will come out on top. It will encompass the world. And so what John wants to do is inspire hope. But as this letter goes to these seven churches, and it is copied and circulated now, obviously the writer did not want to say things so plain that any Joe on the street could just pick it up and understand exactly what he was saying. And I don't know if I was in a Christian congregation in the first century and Nero's on the throne and he wrote Revelation and called Nero the names he calls him in here and, and named him and told what he was going to do with him and then told, told what he was going to do with the Jews and here I am carrying this little book around living with the Jews and, and Romans. I don't think I would have felt very careful carrying that material around. Well, with the time John got
16, chapter 7. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, the visions had passed through my mind. To serve me, I approached one of those standing there and asked him of the true meaning of all this. He told me and gave me the interpretation of four great beasts, okay, uh, similar to what we have in Revelation, we've got beasts, are four kingdoms. So we say that beast is used to represent a king or a kingdom that will rise from the earth. It's very similar, isn't it? But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. So Daniel, looking from his time, said there's going to be four beasts, four kings, but then the saints of the Most High will possess it. I wanted to know the true meaning of the fourth beast. Okay, now from Daniel's earlier vision, who is the fourth world empire? Rome. You've got Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. I want to know the meaning of the, of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, most terrifying, with its armed teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the, notice now, the ten horns on its head. Okay, we'll slug over here. I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns. <clears throat> Seven heads. And so Daniel, at the time of the Babylonian Empire, speaks of four beasts representing four empires. The fourth one is Rome, and that fourth beast has ten horns. And now John speaks of this beast coming up out of the sea. It's got ten horns on his, on his seven heads. And about the other horn which came up before which three of them fell. The horn that looked more imposing than the others, and that had eyes and mouth and spoke boastfully. And I watched this horn. And notice what this horn was doing? Waging war against the saints and defeating them. Is that what we have in Revelation? The beasts waging war against the saints and defeating them? Until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole world, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come up from its kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High, oppress his saints, try to change set times and laws. The saints will be handed over to him. Uh-oh, look at this. For how long? Time, times, and half a time. Okay, now let's come back over here. And look at 12 and 14 of Revelation. The woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, and she might fly to a place prepared for her in the desert, and she would be taken care of for how long? Time, times, and half a time. And we pointed out that Daniel says time, time, and half a time. In Revelation, times, time, times, and half a time, 42 months and 1260 days are all used in a synonymous way. Okay? So then he comes on, he says, the ten horns of ten kings will come up from the kingdom. Another king will arise, different from the earlier one. He will stew three kings. Okay. Then he said the saints will be handed over for three and a half periods of time. Okay, and we talked about the parallel with that in Revelation. But the court will say, this power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled. My thoughts and my face turned pale, and I kept the matter to myself. So if you've ever had a problem understanding this, don't feel bad. Daniel made him sick. He worked so hard trying to understand the whole thing that he got sick, got pale, and, and finally didn't figure it out. So don't you feel bad? Or remember what Peter said? The prophets speaking of things that happened in the New Testament and how those prophets that wrote them searched diligently trying to figure out and they couldn't figure it all out. That it was waiting to be revealed. Now, all I want to point out from that little bit we read in Daniel, without going into every exact detail, can we see the similarity? Daniel has four beasts. The fourth beast is the fourth world empire. It's the greatest empire. We now, at the time John writes, are in the days of the fourth world empire. John identifies this.
this beast. John speaks of ten horns. Daniel had ten horns. John has the beast fighting God's people. Daniel has the beast fighting God's people. Daniel has the beast finally conquered and then God's people, the kingdom, ruling. Remember in his vision in chapter 2, you have the head of gold, then you have silver, bronze, then the fourth world empire was iron. And remember there was that little rock that was cut off and then it rolled down and got bigger and bigger and hit that beast. And when Daniel just busted it apart, and when Daniel interpreted that, he said, in the days of that fourth kingdom, the Lord God would create a kingdom that would never be destroyed. And it would go and it would fill the earth. And so what Daniel says, in figurative language, John comes along, use a lot, uses a lot of the same type of figurative language as he depicts the battle going on between the persecuting force and God's people. Okay. Look at verse 4. Men worship the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they worship the beast and ask, who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? Okay, now as they talk about worshiping this beast and all, who can make war against him? Hold your place there and flip back to 2 Thessalonians. Okay. 2 Thessalonians 2 and 3 and 4. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. That day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Notice now, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship, so that he sets himself up as in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. What do you have here? We've already looked at Thessalonians. Here we've got the dragon has set himself up to be worshipped. And he was the top one. And they worshipped the beast and said, who's like the beast? Who can make war against him? Now, who's going to make war against him for the problem? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name in his dwelling place. And those who live in heaven, he was, he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he's given authority over every tribe, people, and language, and nation, and all the inhabitants of the earth. Well, there's never been anything in all history you could say that of, except the Roman Empire. That he literally controlled and dominated the civilized world. But he's, he dominates the whole world. But he is making war against the saints. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. In other words, when they started giving worship, <clears throat> man, all these pagans, everybody, are bowing down. They're, they're going to ready to do anything. But Christians, by the thousands, will go to their death. Because they're not going to bow down. And John is writing to ensure that they do stand up. But by the thousands, Christians will stand up with their belief in Jesus as the Son of God. He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity he will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword he will be killed. This calls for patient, notice now, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness in the heart of the saints. Then I saw another beast come up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. Right, what does this sound like now? Horns like a lamb spoke like a dragon. Dragon. <coughs> Sound like he's somewhat deceiving, doesn't he? He's, he's coming across as one thing, but really he's something else. Sort of like Jesus spoke of wolves in sheep's clothing. Be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. This guy speaks like a dragon, or he has two horns like a lamb. He spoke like a dragon. And so there's a force there locally that seemingly is representing good, but really they're being used by the beast. Well, is there any kind of force like that that the Christians had to deal with? Yeah, 
Okay, the Jews, the Judaizers, the teachers, the Samaritans among the Jews, setting themselves up as the people of God and, and, and interpreters of God's way, and yet they were a tremendous, not only persecuting force, but remember when the Hebrew letter is written, many Christians are going back into Judaism because of the deceptive reasoning of these Judaizers teachers. He exercises all authority in the first piece on behalf and made, uh, and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first feet, whose fatal wound had been healed. Now the way Wallace understands the fatal wound is that, remember we said the reason Israel went to war in 67 was that we had a situation there where there was a lot of rebellion against Rome, and in, in, right after Nero, that they're going to go through uh, three emperors in a year's time like that, and then vaccination. A strong person will take over and will actually finish out and get the kingdom under control and will actually be on the throne when Jerusalem is conquered. And what he believes is, is the wound is, is in the weakened condition. That's when Israel revolted and rebelled. Uh, but then the emperor got hold again, Vespasian wound up on the throne, and they were strong, and then they were ready to go ahead and finish the task. But they were in a weakened position there for a sale lease, it, it simply it fits it. He performed great, now, at this time, they said there was somebody performing great miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven and do it men. Because of the signs, he was given power on behalf of the first beast, and he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. So there's somebody performing false signs and, and of a miraculous nature and, and claiming to be somebody special with God. Well, what did Jesus look at his holy place here? Look over Matthew 24, 24. He's talking about forehead, 
so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast, the number of his name. Pardon me. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, notice now, he knows everybody not to understand this right away. He said, if anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number. His number is 666. Okay? Tells you it's a man. He says it's 666. And again, I point out, this sounds strange to you and I, but keep in mind, at that time, there were people that specialized in this. This is something they were familiar with. It is interesting, to say the least, that when you take the consonants in Nero Caesar, that you can divide them up and come up with that term 666. As I pointed out, the Syrian version of the Bible, the oldest complete version we have in the New Testament, identifies it as it identifies the numbers as pertaining to Nero Caesar. Also, in Wallace's book, uh, he quotes several historians, even going back to some of the early ones, like Ignatius and all, that understood this and actually pointed out and inquired into Nero Caesar. Suffice it to say, if, if the book is written before 70 AD, it would have to be because he's talking about the head man on this persecuting force, and that, of course, was Nero Caesar at this particular time. Anybody have any comments before we close out for the night? I have several other things that I wanted to get in, but we pushed and went way over, but it was just pretty much to get it all the way in. Anybody have any comments? Okay, if you have any between now and next week, bring it up as we start. And we'll start with the 14th chapter next week. Start with the 14th chapter next week.